So hi everyone, welcome back to the new podcast series from Speak Up Project of Isaac in Malaysia for summer 2021. In our first episode, we have invited Mr. Chong from our national learning partner, Chambaka, to talk about blended learning and also open source platforms. In this second episode, we are going back to the core of our project to talk about education in Malaysia. And we are very delighted to invited Mr. Kevin Tam from our national learning partner, Teach for Malaysia, to discuss with us on this topic. Teach for Malaysia is an organization dedicated in mobilizing youths in Malaysia to end educational inequity. Let's give a warm welcome to Kevin. So, Kevin, would you like to introduce Teach for Malaysia? Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, um, my name is Kevin and I lead the recruitment team at Teach for Malaysia. Uh, where I recruit talents to be placed in high-need secondary schools uh, and, and work together alongside students, teachers, and communities to ensure all students have uh, equal access to learning opportunities. So thank you, Kevin, again for joining us today, and we look forward to the insights that you will be sharing with us. So without further ado, let's start by talking about education and inequality first. So by educational equality in your organizational perspective, what does that actually mean? Well, I, I think for us here at Teach for Malaysia, uh, educational equality simply means that uh, every child, no matter where you go to school, you have the same access to learning, that you get the same quality and high quality content in the learning, that everyone has the same opportunity to succeed uh, wherever they go to school and that the education that they receive should also open doors for further opportunities in the future. And for that definition, what outcomes should be seen when education is equal for everyone? I think in an ideal world where we're able to achieve an education that's equal for everyone, then we should not have any worry at all about where we send our children to school, right? Uh, that if I were to be a parent, I can place my child in any school and I know that my child have the same opportunity to uh, do well in school and uh, be successful later on in life. And I should not have that worry simply because I, I know that the quality is the same. So in order for us to do that, we need to know how equal are the educational opportunities in Malaysia prior to the COVID-19 outbreak first. Actually, prior to COVID-19, uh, educational opportunities are, I'd say, highly unequal in, in Malaysia. Uh, and it is highly unequal if we compare between uh, students from socioeconomically advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, for instance, if we look at the 2018 round of uh, PISA, uh, that is the Program for International Student, Asse Student Assessment, uh, socioeconomically advantaged students actually outperform disadvantaged students in reading by 89 score points, right? So the PISA uh, assessment, it's carried out every three years. In PISA 2009, the performance gap related to socioeconomic status was 53 points in Malaysia. So it went from 53 points in 2009 to 89 points in 2018. Uh, it has actually widened uh, over the years. And what do you think were some factors that lead to this very unequal educational opportunities in Malaysia? 
I, I think that there are definitely a lot of different factors that are interlinked. Uh, if I were to put it simply, uh, I'll probably come back to socioeconomic background, where our children live, where they go to school, or uh, how much their parents earn, uh, and what kind of opportunities exist in that, that, that school or that environment. Schools are quite different uh, depending on whether uh, a student comes from, a, from an affluent background or a less privileged background. Right. And, and there are also uh, methods of uh, peer influence, whether or not they have the right uh, role models, right? uh, depending on the kind of uh, background or communities that they come from. So for that, do you think that educators fully understand the importance of educational equality? Yeah, absolutely. I think many educators and many teachers understand the importance of uh, education equality. I I think that many teachers would always want their best, uh, the very best for the students, no matter who they are, no matter where the students come from. Um, we have seen uh, even before the pandemic, uh, many teachers whom we work with, right, especially teacher major, work with uh, many uh, high need schools. That teachers would always want to look for different opportunities to. To, have, to get their students to gain different kinds of experiences, whether it's learning in a classroom, engagement and participation in a classroom, or taking part in competitions or representing a school, right? teachers would always go the extra mile to ensure students have different opportunities and give their very, very best to their students. Mm. It's like, I'm very glad to hear that you think of, like educators actually understand the importance of education equality. And actually, like what you said just now, um, many teachers are doing above and beyond for to promote education equality during the pandemic. And do you have any like specific examples for that? I, I think initially when we had the sudden and abrupt shift to learning from home, uh, initially many people find it difficult to adjust. But, uh, whether it's students or, or teachers, right? But we have seen teachers investing a lot of effort to make sure that they are able to, to adapt to, to that change. They are able to learn the technology, whether it's you know, getting used to platforms like Google Meet or Zoom. Uh, I have seen some teachers who also would go the extra mile of uh, making sure that, oh, they have a green screen and, uh, 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 and set up some virtual setting to make their lessons and engaging right and there are also teachers where teachers who teach in communities where students have little or no access to internet or connectivity uh, the teachers are, are investing a lot of effort to to make sure learning continues for instance uh, I, i've actually came across quite a few stories of like teachers in rural areas in, in say sabah or sarah for instance they would uh, regularly uh, send learning materials to students' homes to make sure that students can still continue uh, learning at home, even without the access of a computer or without access to internet. Mm -hmm. So as we step into the topic for um, COVID-19, um, since the outbreak of COVID-19, it has been around two years already. What are the challenges faced by um, educators? students and parents when it comes to ensuring education equality under COVID-19? Yeah, I, I think challenges were 
there were many, many challenges when we first had to shift from learning in school to, to the new normal in the pandemic, right? Schools have operated pretty much the same way for a very, very long time where uh, students go to school, you're probably in a classroom setting, and that's where the learning happens, right? So when schools were closed, whether it was in Malaysia or anywhere else in the world, the default mode was to move learning online. This move was so abrupt, no one would have predicted the kind of disruption that the pandemic would have caused, right? So briefly mentioned earlier, uh, access to technology was actually one of the challenges, right? So for instance, in the early stages of pandemic in April 2020, for instance, just a few weeks after the lockdown began in Malaysia, the Ministry of Education in Malaysia conducted a research that involved about uh, 670,000 parents and 900,000 students. This survey actually found that about 36.9% of students did not possess any electronic device at all. Right? And uh, even among those who does, only about 9% possess a laptop, of close to 6% who has a tablet, and about 46% own a smartphone. So clearly not every person, not every student have access to a device. If I were to just add on a little bit more, uh, again, you know, it's not just about having device, but it's also about adapting and familiarizing with the technology. So, you know, uh, using platforms such as whether it's Google Meet, Zoom, uh, or Microsoft Teams, or any other platforms on a regular basis uh, would have been a challenge for some, right? And I, I think many people may not have even heard of Zoom before the pandemic. So a lot of people had to adapt, and you know, educators have to uh, not only familiarize themselves with this new technology, but they also have to think about, okay, you know, now my classroom is fully online, all my students are only on my screen. How do I then make my lessons interactive? How do I keep my students engaged? How do I keep them focused? How do I make lessons interesting so that every lesson uh, is meaningful? And I, I think it goes without saying, you know, uh, a financial background uh, or, or financial challenges were, were definitely prevalent among uh, lower income communities simply because Devices don't necess- don't come by cheap, right? And internet access or data also come at a cost for everybody. It may seem like a very small cost if you come from a more affluent background, but you know the subscription to internet services or data uh, that can cost quite a lot if you know students come from a, a lower income family or low income background. Mm, okay, so um, like talking about moving learning online, access to technology, and of course, financial challenges. How has the government or NGOs play a role in solving these challenges? I think there has definitely been a lot of different kinds of initiatives uh, to solve these challenges and, and hopefully ensure that learning continues for all students. Right? The government, for instance, in Malaysia, right? we actually introduced uh, an education television uh, or we, we, here in Malaysia, we call it DDAT TV. Uh, now, when it first started in early 2021, there were some criticisms for it. But when UNICEF actually conducted a survey among uh, parents from low-income backgrounds, about 62% of parents surveyed actually said that was a really good initiative by the government, right, to introduce education TV. It's learning on the television where teachers are invited to deliver lessons on television. It gives easy access 
to a lot of students, especially if they come from a lower income background, where access to devices and Zoom really is actually a privilege, right? And uh, there, there are definitely a lot of uh, different initiatives around, whether it's you know, uh, uh, donating devices to students who need them or providing uh, different forms of resources. Peach Home Malaysia also uh, received some really generous proposals from quite a number of corporate partners who were looking to donate uh, laptops to, to students who actually need them. So last year, for instance, uh, uh, HP Hewlett Packard was one of the companies that partnered with, uh, with Tico Malaysia and, and donated uh, quite, uh, quite an amount of laptops to students. There, there are actually many other non-profit organizations out there who also look to provide solutions to the different kinds of challenges that we have been facing in the past year and a half. So I can very glad to hear that everyone is coming together to help the situation to not worsen or not to delay students' performances or their learning schedules despite the outbreak of COVID-19. But uh, despite the effort and also the resources provided, some phenomena can also be seen, such as um, students having early dropouts. There is very low attendance to um, classes or even worsened school performances. So what are the factors that are preventing parents or educators from supporting students in their student uh, studies or learnings? Well, I, I, I think there are uh, multiple factors. I think the, the most obvious that has been talked about time and time again by so many people, so many people over the past year and a half is number one, a lack of necessary equipments, right? Uh, whether or not students and families have access to either a laptop or a smartphone, because a lot of the learning takes place through video conferencing platforms, right? Whether it's Google Meet or Zoom. Even among some uh, lower income families who can afford it, uh, some of these students actually only have one device shared between siblings or maybe even shared with their parents who also need the device to be working from home, right? So it's one device shared by multiple, multiple people, which uh, doesn't provide everyone in the family with equal access to do what they need to do, whether it's learning or working from home. I think for some families, according to, to a survey by UNICEF, uh, uh, in some f families, there's also a lack of space, right? I think it depends on the size of family or, or the kind of uh, environment that you live in. If you live in a small home, but you have a family of a reasonable size, uh, that, there's lack of space, lack of, perhaps a lack of a conducive space to, to ensure that students can focus in their learning. And I think maybe lastly, I would probably want to say uh, another factor that prevent, for instance, uh, maybe prevent parents uh, from supporting their children, I'd say it is that the lack of ability to support uh, to supervise their children, right? So the lack of ability to supervise, I think it, 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 it depends on the family background as well. Uh, I think number one, parents may not have time because they, they obviously also have to work. They have their own priorities. They have to work. They have to earn a living and put food on the table for the family, right? And in, in this instance, it doesn't matter whether you're from an affluent or low-income background, right? Parents have to, to work and may not be able to supervise their children. Uh, secondly, some parents may not have the necessary knowledge or skills, and they simply do not know how to help, right? It's not that they don't want to help. They do not know how best to help their children. Okay. That is a very endangering situation as well. 
when it comes to the last point, where actually parents would like to help, but they can't because of the lack of knowledge. So when we talk about the shifting of learning from、um, physical to online. Despite the effort of educators、um, helping to facilitate interactive learning, such as like introducing Kahoot to class,、um, different interactive tasks in class that can foster the communication between teachers and students, what are some key elements from physical mode of education that cannot be replaced by virtual learning? In my opinion, I feel like there there are two things I would like to call out. I think, like,、uh, as much as you know,、uh, teachers invest a lot of effort to make the lessons really creative and engaging. The fact is, number one, on, in an online setting, students actually have、uh, reduced opportunities. I say to learn certain skills, not necessarily knowledge, because I think that knowledge in terms of like subject content that can definitely be learned. But students will have reduced opportunities to build certain skills. Like, for instance. Uh, they don't necessarily do science experiment at home because when they're in school, they do science experiment in school labs, right? Learning at home, they don't participate in sports, right? They、uh, or any other extracurricular activities. So there are reduced opportunities to to build and learn skills on,、uh, on things like you know、uh, teamwork. How do you interact with、uh, your peers, right? Don't get me wrong; like, these things do still happen in an online learning. Uh, what, I'm, uh, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, there are reduced opportunities for these things to、uh, happen. And I think if we think of students, depending on the age group, then the younger the students, the younger the kids, they have even less opportunities, right? So, so for instance, the younger kids, recess time in school is when they eat and play with their friends, right? Let's say you're、uh, a primary one or primary two student, you're or, or maybe even in kindergarten, you're really really young, right? Recess is when you Uh, eat with your friends. You play with your friends. You learn how to build bonds. You build friendships, right? You、uh, you you learn how to interact and socialize. And the younger the children, the less likely it is for them to be doing these things online, right? It's not something that you can easily do with your friends online. So yeah, I think like these are things that cannot be replaced, or at least cannot be easily replaced by virtual learning. Certainly. As you say, especially for、um, ECAs and also sports, that students are too pressurized. I would say to actually catch up with virtual learnings and、um, virtual schoolwork, that they would definitely neglect this aspect of skills to equip themselves with, and also probably affect on how they can live out a healthy lifestyle as well, because physical education is definitely fostering that part. Of students' life as well. So actually,、uh, when it comes to this,、um, actually also affect the performance of students, as you have mentioned. Actually, before COVID nineteen and twenty eighteen, there's already an eighty nine score points like different between socially economic status、um, high with higher socially economic status students and disadvantaged students. Is COVID nineteen enlarging? That gap between the performance of students. I I think there's definitely no doubt that COVID nineteen and online learning had widened the gap between performance of students from this from at、uh, from a more advantage and disadvantage backgrounds. So I think in Malaysia, for instance, an overwhelming ninety six percent of teachers surveyed by 
by a union self study says that they find uh, low student engagement in, in, in their virtual classroom to be a huge challenge. Right? As classes went online, they saw the effectiveness of instructions actually decline. And McKinsey also uh, did a survey and research where they, they surveyed teachers from eight different countries across the world. And this was published uh, sometime in March 2021. Teachers agree on the high cost of remote learning. For instance, teachers in high poverty schools found that virtual classes to be especially ineffective, whereas teachers in who, teachers who teach in wealthier schools are more likely to report that remote learning is still effective and that they have access and they can engage with students easily. Now, in terms of how students perform academically, I think at the moment, uh, we unfortunately, I, I, I personally feel like we don't have enough data to fully comprehend the impact yet on, on, on student learning. But we definitely see that there's a huge difference in terms of how students engage and are able to follow through their classes. So there are actually a lot of countries across the world have abolished major public school exams. Uh, in Malaysia, the Ministry of Education last year cancelled UPSR and PT3, which are meant for uh, primary school leavers and Form 3 uh, students. Uh, and, and this year, the government fully abolished UPSR. Now, for the record at Teach for Malaysia, we fully support abolishment of UPSR for uh, the primary school event exam, for instance, right? Because we believe we should adopt that uh, adopt a more holistic approach to assessment and move away from standardized testing. But unfortunately, at the moment, we have seen evidences of students not being able to follow through classes. We have yet to be able to fully comprehend how this really impacts their academic results. Then um, following up to what you have mentioned about public exam systems and also the abolishments of um, certain tests under COVID-19, in your perspective, what kind of assessment systems is fair enough for students to evaluate the performance under COVID-19? Yeah, I, I think it's also, I think it's important to really see how students grow uh, holistically, which means it's not just limited to knowledge of each subject, but also skill sets, right? Like how well the students build and develop uh, critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills. Uh, do they also build uh, other kind of skills like uh, social and emotional learning? Uh, do they grow in resilience? Right? Uh, do they uh, grow in communication skills? So I, I think looking at aspects other than content of the subject is definitely important. Yeah. yeah so also t- like talking about soft skills such as like communication skills, like building their resilience and also having critical problem-solving um, skills. How can these uh, soft skills and also relationship building be facilitated through virtual learning? Um, there are definitely ways to creatively innovate online learning to simulate a physical classroom environment. Briefly discussed uh, moments ago about you know, how much effort teachers have invested in making sure they innovate their instruction or how they carry out lessons. And I think many teachers have been very intentional in allowing students to still maybe potentially work together, uh, do group work, right? And, and students also interact with each other and build relationships through the lessons that they've had. But I think beyond the lessons of, let's say, whether you're learning English or maths or science and whatnot, 
I think we it, it is also key to be very intentional about having specific learning sessions that help students to develop those skills or even relationships, right? So, for instance, at Teach for Malaysia, we, we work in partnership with, with some of our alumni and, and partners. We put together a student leadership strategy playbook uh, that helps students to develop a few different really important skills. So, n- number one, you know, social and emotional learning. Uh, two, resilience. Uh, three, uh, entrepreneurship or, or problem solving. And for communication, so you know, uh, through this student leadership strategy playbook, uh, we actually have quite a number of different activities um, that will walk students through to facilitate their, their, their learning in, in terms of how they can build those skills. Right? So these resources are actually available on a on on a website that we put together last year. Uh, it's called uh, Teach from Malaysia Distance Learning, um, uh, tfmdistancelearning.org, which you know. Any teacher anywhere in the world uh, can actually access and actually use this. Many of our fellows and many teachers have actually tried using this in the classroom as well. Mm-hmm. So apart from this um, like playbook that TFM and also your alumni have developed and having TFM in this core of the problem that we see is very important to solve, especially under COVID-19, where your vision becomes very, very viable under this um, pandemic outbreak. What are the other solutions explored by PFM to keep education running under COVID-19? Um, so, so the website that I mentioned, uh, tfmdistancelearning.org, uh, it, it's uh, something that we put together last year in partnership with, with, with our partners, uh, Bain and Company. So this website actually contains a distance learning strategy where we propose ideas and solutions to cater to school leaders, teachers, parents, or students. Uh, from different kinds of backgrounds, right? Whether you have access to technology or have very little to, or to maybe even no access to technology. So we have all kinds of solutions ranging from having bandwidth to, to, to low or no bandwidth. For instance, last year, we worked with YTL, one of our partners, to create 700 lessons online. Uh, and these lessons uh, cover topics in uh, English, mathematics, and science curriculum from primary one to form five. Uh, and they have been viewed over 330,000 times. Now, when the pandemic hit, we also thought that we, we definitely need to look at what, uh, how we can work with students who don't have access to online learning, right? So we also piloted uh, a project called the Learning Box. It is a self-directed learning resource box containing engaging activities and materials. Uh, and we when we first piloted it last year, we sandboxes to about 500 students across Malaysia uh, so that they can continue learning in limited or low bandwidth environments. Yeah. So can see that the solutions being explored by TFM is very all-rounded, I would say. Yeah. And the importance of working with others as well can also be seen here because you can get um, these technology resources to more people across Malaysia. So I guess we have discussed a lot about the present and also what was the phenomenon before COVID-19. We also should think about what we are going to face next. So in the topic of um, education recovery, 
What do you foresee in the next one to three years for education in Malaysia? I think we all see an urgency to really address the learning gap that we have already witnessed in the past one and a half years. If we don't act now, what we will likely see is more and more students getting left behind. Um, so we, we we definitely need to consider different ways uh, to continue working together to ensure that students are able to be back on track where they are needed to be. And this should not be the sole responsibilities of just teachers or the government or solely the uh, parents. Right? I, I think it needs to be a collective responsibility to ensure that all our children are able to continue learning and be back on track uh, as soon as possible. And in addressing that, like for students lacking behind in virtual learning, what are the help that can be given in post-COVID-19 times? Well, I think if post-COVID-19, that's assuming that schools would reopen, but, but even if schools don't reopen, I think that's something that we definitely need to work towards to as soon as possible, and, and ensuring that schools open as quickly as possible so that students who don't have access to virtual learning can actually be finally back in school, in the classrooms, right? I think here in Malaysia, we see a, a uniform decision for all schools in the country, and that need not necessarily be the way. We, I, I think one of the things that we can do is to really decentralize decision-making on whether or not schools can open um, at the school level so that, say, say for example, uh, communities where there are very low COVID-19 cases, schools can actually reopen safely if, uh, uh, if they follow a certain set of guidelines. But beyond opening of schools, we definitely need to make sure that students catch up, right, because of the many, many lessons that they have lost that they were not able to meaningfully engage with in the past year and a half. So, for instance, here at Teach for Malaysia, we believe that students who are falling behind can definitely excel if they are able to get one-to-one -one attention to be back where they need to be. So, we, we, are, uh, we are launching a tutoring program to pair um, students with tutors to learn not just only the content of you know, subjects that they, they found difficult to comprehend, uh, but also through these tutoring sessions, uh, we, we want to work with students to build the kind of skills that would help them accelerate their own learning. I guess this should be a topic that people should start discussing again, because uh, despite the very fluctuating situation of COVID-19 in Malaysia, there would definitely be a day where education is back to normal. When we say normal, it may become a weird term after like one or two years when actually virtual learning become the norm and physical school is the alienated term that we have listened to. Yes. So to kind of wrap up this podcast episode, how should the transition from virtual learning to physical schooling be facilitated? I, I think in this particular regard, I, I, I would probably want to say we should have a strategy and think about how we can facilitate, especially the younger students, younger kids to, to transition from virtual learning to, to physical schooling. Uh, as, as you have just said, right? Uh, virtual learning in the past year and a half, it's now becoming, this is the, the norm. So 
I, I think the older students have been to school before. Uh, they, they have an idea of like what it's like. But for, say, for instance, a, a, a child in kindergarten or maybe a child who just started primary school, they started off primary school in a learning, uh, in a virtual learning environment. They have not experienced what a physical school is like. I think I, we need to, this is where I feel like we need to give an extra attention to how, how to ease the transition that these students uh, need to, uh, we, we, need, we need to look at how do we equip students with, again, I'll probably come back to skills, right, to be in that new kind of setting. Uh, you're in a bigger classroom, you're in a school environment. How, how do you interact with people meaningfully, inter- make new friends, right, uh, build relationships, social skills, interaction, communication. I think these are areas that definitely need uh, attention with the younger students. Yes. So with all the content that we have discussed for the previous 30 minutes, that I think we have come to an end with today's podcast, where we have discussed education inequality in Malaysia under COVID-19 and what we wish to see for the future when COVID would end and how we can transition back to our original norm. So once again, I would like to thank Kevin for joining us today. And I would like to also thank the audience for staying with us to the end. So coming up next after the two episodes with our national learning partners will be the multiple podcast episodes from our local chapters with topics ranging from education, cultural diversity to challenges for youth in Malaysia. So please continue to support our Speak Up podcasts and stay tuned to our upcoming podcast episodes. So thank you, Kevin, and goodbye. Thank you for having me.